0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, it's time for a little bit of film history. Yeah. Which I always love. This is one that is seems especially engaging to me because of this weird time we're living through. We can't help but look at everything through that lens. Mm-hmm. Um, We know that this pandemic is impacting virtually every industry in a variety of ways, and the film industry is no exception. Studios, of course, shut down in the spring when the pandemic was declared, but so did theaters. Some have reopened, some have not. And as we've all seen, films that were already made or in post-production have been all over the place in terms of how they've been distributed to consumers And that, along with some other stuff that we will get to, uh, has made me think about film distribution historically. And so initially, I wanted to talk about the Paramount Decrees of 1948. That is a case that's been in the news lately, and it's a good example of how things that have happened in the past still offer up some surprises decades later. But as I started working on it, I really found myself wanting to dig a little bit deeper into how things got to the point where that particular court case happened, starting with how the studios developed, because those two things are inextricably intertwined. And because it has roots in very early days of the motion picture industry in the U.S., so just how the studio system grew led to what happened legally and this becomes a lot so we are splitting it into two parts so in this first episode we're going to talk about the people and events that led to the establishment of Paramount Pictures as a key player in the movie industry and then in the second episode we will talk about the two court cases against Paramount as well as other defendants in the first half of the 20th century and then we're going to touch on recent developments that are related to all of those legal proceedings which went on for years and years (laughs) yeah <laughs> and recent means just recent very weeks recent, ago weeks yeah. ago
1: as of when we are recording this so to really get to the roots of this story we have to start with adolf zucker zucker was born on january 7th 1873 in richa hungary and in hungarian his last name would be more like zukor but he seems to have stuck with a pretty americanized version By the time he was seven, he had already lost both of his parents. He never really knew his father, who died when Zucker was one. And although his mother had remarried, instead of staying with his stepfather, he was moved to live with his uncle.
0: And though the family had hoped that Adolf would become a rabbi, his fascination with studying religious history was really all about the stories and much less about the spiritual aspects of Judaism, at least as a personal calling. As a teen, Adolf instead became an apprentice to a shopkeeper, and it was through the shopkeeper's daughters that he learned about pulp fiction from the United States.
1: The prospect of being a shopkeeper was really not any more appealing to Adolf than becoming a rabbi had been. He eventually convinced his family to let him sail to the United States with a tiny sum of money. It's estimated at $40. He was going to try
0: to start a new life. Yeah, that probably didn't seem like a tiny sum at the time, but when you think about starting a brand new life somewhere else, it doesn't go very far. This whole thing was a really arduous undertaking. So, first of all, he had to book the lowest class of passage for the journey. Uh, That came with no amenities. There was a degree of peril. There's stories about how he sewed his $40 into the lining of his clothes so that no one would rob him when he slept on the boat. And then once he arrived in New York, he didn't know anybody, and he had to start entirely from scratch to try to find work he eventually settled into a position as a furrier's apprentice. He first, according to most stories, started out just sweeping the floor and then kind of became an apprentice. But he was also taking classes at night to improve his English, and some stories say he also took classes uh, in business as well.
1: Within just a couple of years, he had become a skilled designer and started working as an independent furrier by the age of 19, He moved to Chicago a year later in 1893 when the World's Columbian Exposition was there. He wound up staying in the city and becoming a partner in the Novelty Fur Company with a 50% share. The business made a lot of money, but after a misstep in predicting trends, Zucker really found his fashion career on a downslide.
0: And while he moved back to New York and got back on his feet, thanks to his connections in the fur industry, Zucker was already starting to think about film. He also got married during this time in 1897 to a young woman named Lottie Kaufman. They stayed married for the rest of their lives. One of the furriers that Zucker became friends with during this time was Marcus Lowe. That name is familiar to you because of Lowe's cinemas. There's a reason. Zucker even took an apartment across the street from Lowe, and their families remained friends for life.
1: So he had previously... Uh, mispredicted a trend; the opposite happened in 1902. He made a small fortune after correctly predicting a trend for Red Fox that year. And Zucker wanted to invest all this money that he made. It was somewhere between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand dollars. His choice for this was investing into the entertainment industry. Adolph and several of his friends in the fur industry invested in a penny arcade that was opened by Mitchell Mark in 1903. It was on 14th Street near Broadway. This arcade, nicknamed Automatic Vaudeville, made $100,000 in its first year. Zucker left the fur business completely soon after that to expand his penny
0: arcades into other locations. And the next evolution of his entertainment business was to set up an arcade with a theater to show motion pictures. So the top floor of Zucker's automatic vaudeville was outfitted with 200 seats, and for a nickel, customers could watch a 15-minute show. This shift to showing motion
1: pictures required some enticement. Zucker described this change in the offerings of the arcade later in his life. Quote, We had this empty floor over the arcade, about 40 feet by 250 feet, We put in 200 seats and then began to worry because it seemed like an awful lot, especially as most of our customers didn't know what moving pictures were and were used to paying one cent, not five. So we put in a wonderful glass staircase. Under the glass was a metal trough of running water, like a waterfall with red, green, and blue lights shining through. We called it Crystal Hall and people paid their five cents mainly on account of the staircase, not the movies. It was a big success.
0: (laughs) This is, like, such great packaging, right? That staircase sounds pretty cool. It does. Zucker routinely sat in the sixth row of the Crystal Hall Theater while movies ran, and he would turn around and watch the faces of the audience in the rows behind him as they reacted to the movies that were being shown. And he noticed the patterns in what worked for audiences and what didn't, and he used that information to make decisions about what films to offer.
1: In 1904, the St. Louis World's Fair featured a novelty movie experience called Hale's Tours of the World. It was named for their inventor, George C. Hale. The attraction was basically a decommissioned train car that had been set up as a theater. The theater attendants dressed as train conductors, and once they were inside, customers were shown travel films while the car rocked and shook and the bell clanged as though the whole thing were traveling through a European town or countryside.
0: Zucker loved this thing. Uh, He bought the rights to offer Hales tours in New York, and then he opened Hales tours in Coney Island, Newark, and Pittsburgh after that. And initially, they were really huge draws, but two things ultimately doomed the Hales tour to a short life. One, once an audience had experienced this, the novelty kind of wore off. There weren't a lot of people that wanted to keep going back on the same tour. Two, new films were not being made, even though Zucker is said to have asked the team at the newly formed Motion Picture Patents Company, that is also known as the Edison Trust, and we'll reference that name a bunch coming up, uh, to make more of them. But they were not really interested in going and filming the European countryside anymore.
1: Despite its initial success, Hales Tours ultimately landed Zucker's company in six-figure debt. While his business partners wanted to consider declaring bankruptcy, Zucker would not hear of it. He had another idea. Over the next two years, Zucker led a project that turned all of the Hales tour locations into regular movie theaters. At the end of those two years, the company was out of debt and turning a profit, but he still had the problem of not having enough new films to satisfy
0: him. In 1909, Zucker's company combined with that of his friend, Marcus Lowe. Lowe had also been opening successful theaters of his own, and once the companies combined under the Lowe Enterprise's name, Adolf Zucker's work shifted completely. He focused on movies entirely, not so much on the marketing or the locations or building out theaters but just the movies, first by traveling both the U.S. and Europe and simply going to the movies and watching the audience and kind of tracking their reactions.
1: We are going to talk in a moment about how the information that Zucker collected led him to develop bigger projects, but first, we will pause for a quick sponsor break.
0: Adolf Zucker wanted to explore the idea of longer-form content instead of the short films that were being produced in the early 1900s. He had a vision that was for a movie that was not just something for casual foot traffic crowds of a busy city, but a level of entertainment that would draw a crowd the same way a theatrical play might.
1: And that is how he came to found the Famous Players Company, which was named for his motto of Famous Players and Famous Plays. As that motto suggests, Zucker wanted to get talent with established name recognition from theater to star in films that were based on well-known plays.
0: Yeah, in a lot of cases it was, hey, you got famous doing this play on Broadway, can we film that play and make it a movie? Famous Players Company was actually set up more as the distributor to release Zucker's first movie after production was already completed. That movie was Queen Elizabeth, which starred Sarah Bernhardt. The film had been shot in France, and it was a British-French production with the title Les Amours de la Reine Elizabeth, or simply La Reine Elisabeth, And Zucker secured the U.S. distribution rights for either $35,000 or $40,000, depending on who you listen to. That was considered an absurdly high amount of money. But Zucker paid it, and then he had the film premiere at Broadway's Lyceum Theater on July 12th, 1912, as a huge event. The ticket price was massive for the time. It was a dollar. Remember, he had been charging five cents for his... Theaters in the automated vaudeville. But Zucker's effort to market this longer length film, trading on Bernhardt's fame and the fresh concept of a longer form, it ran more than 40 minutes, was ultimately very successful.
1: So from there, things moved really quickly for Zucker. He got more Broadway actors to make films based on the plays that they were already famous for, this time with his company actually making the films. He made versions of The Prisoner of Zenda and The Count of Monte Cristo and several other films in less than a year.
0: He also left Low Enterprises to focus on Famous Players Company full-time. He transitioned Mary Pickford to film, initially paying her $500 a week, which was more than two and a half times what she was making on Broadway. And then Pickford was, of course, catapulted to stardom and wealth she probably could never have anticipated, eventually getting paid $10,000 a week just a few years later. That is not adjusted. That's $10,000 in 19-teens money. In
1: 1916, Adolf Zucker merged his company with another film company run independently by Jesse Lasky. They created Famous Players Lasky. While Zucker was establishing himself in film, he'd also gotten into business with a man named W.W. W. Hodkinson, who was working on his own venture in the entertainment world.
0: So we're going to talk about Hodkinson for a minute. William Hodkinson was born in 1881 in Pueblo, Colorado. His middle name was either Wallace or Wadsworth, depending on what source you look at. Some sources include both of them. The Online Archive of California, for example, which has a collection of his papers, even lists him both ways in the finding aid that accompanies that collection.
1: There's not a whole lot of information about Hodkinson's early life. He worked on a railroad telegraph and as a salesman for a correspondence school before moving into the entertainment business. In 1907, he opened one of the first movie theaters in the United States that was in Utah. Uh,
0: Yeah, he originally started out in Ogden and eventually spread to other places. Uh, He has some Salt Lake footprints. But Hodkinson founded Paramount Pictures in 1914. That Paramount Pictures, not what we think of today. It was strictly a distribution company. But Hopkinson was completely changing the way films were distributed. Up to that point, distribution had two primary models.
1: First, there were regional rights, also called states' rights. In this model, the movie producer would sell their films to a salesperson who had a regional distribution network, and then that person who then owned a copy of the film, would take that copy to theaters to be played for audiences. The salesperson would be paid by the theater owner. This usually meant that the same film would be played basically until it was unwatchably damaged because the regional person wanted to make as much money off their investment in purchasing that copy of the film as they possibly could. This meant money up front for the producer, but then the regional salesman made all the money after that It also meant that the producer had no control over the quality of their film that the audiences might see. If you were seeing it late in the run, it might look terrible. Yeah,
0: (laughs) we have all been to second-run theaters and you know how it is a different experience. So imagine that getting worse and worse and worse. The second distribution model at this time was called the Roadshow, and in this scenario, the producer would enter into a contract with a popular first-run movie theater to run their movie as a limited-run special engagement. So this was treated sort of like a special event. Think of it like a touring production of a play, and ticket prices reflected that. The Roadshow approach made a lot of money for producers up front because of the higher cost to the consumer, but that also only lasted for a short period of time.
1: These two approaches were often used in combination. So the producer would have the limited-run roadshow and then would sell states' rights copies. The roadshow screenings would serve as part of the advertising model to drum up interest as the film made its way into other markets through this regional rights distribution.
0: But Paramount Pictures was designed to get out of that regional approach. Hodkinson thought that it would be better to arrange nationwide distribution plans with producers getting a cut of the profits from the box office. Instead of doing this weird, we sell you the movie and you sell the movie to theaters, it was, we arrange for the theaters to do this and we'll all make money together. This was so that there would be a motivation for production companies to focus on quality. Better films would draw more audience and make more money for everybody. Typically, Hodkinson took 35% of the profit and the producers got 65%. And that went on as long as the picture played. So a big change from producers giving up all rights to profit once they had sold a print to a regional distributor.
1: Also, Paramount was providing money to filmmakers as part of their deals. So while the company wasn't making movies, it was financing them. Hodkinson, with a much bigger stake in films, got exclusive distribution rights, so he got control over how and where they were shown. He would determine what markets and what specific theaters were the best match for a given film. He negotiated deals with cinemas, and he arranged for marketing. This cut out the sale of prints to regional
0: salespeople entirely. Another interesting aspect of Paramount was that it wasn't exclusively... Hodkinson's Company. The producers who were part of his distribution model all owned a piece of the business. They were kind of like foundational members.
1: Hodkinson started working on this idea when he was working for the General Film Company in 1911. The General Film Company was the distribution company that was created by the motion picture Patents Company. That is, once again, the Edison Trust. But while Hodgkinson's test efforts in this model did really well, things did not go over so well with the Edison Trust.
0: And we're going to talk more about the Edison Trust and its practices, but first we will take another quick sponsor break. Now, the motion picture Patents company had formed in 1908 in an effort to get the film industry, which was kind of all over the place in terms of technology and stability, to homogenize and settle on one standard. We've talked about this a little bit on previous shows, like when we talked about the Lumiere brothers and and some others and how everybody was developing like their own films, their own cameras, etc., but this trust involved a lot of companies some of which you have also heard of on the show before. So obviously Edison, Vitagraph, Biograph, SNA, Selig, Lubin, Callum, Pathé, Méliès and Gaumont.
1: All of these different players had been involved to some degree in the patent wars around the various technologies that had been developed in this new industry. But by assembling as a trust, they had almost all of the industry's patents and they were in a position to demand that anyone showing a motion picture had to pay the trust a licensing fee for the technology that was involved. Eastman Kodak was under contract to only sell film to licensees of the trust. Film length was limited by the trust to 10 to 20 minutes and actors were not credited per their rules.
0: Yeah, the Edison Trust was like, don't credit actors, because famous actors will start asking for more money. We're going to create a financial problem. Also, like, they just wanted to control everything. I I rolled my eyes really hard. (laughs) (laughs) As you can imagine, independent filmmakers and small theater owners were not big fans of the Trust. And we mentioned before uh, that, you know, there was a desire for longer films, but if they weren't letting enough film be sold to make longer films, that couldn't happen either. Some of these creators opted to import film and equipment from Europe to try to get around the Trust's monopoly. And the Trust was really not keen on Hodkinson's ideas, which shifted things around in a way that would change their model of extracting licensing fees for everyone along the line in a film's production and distribution, and ultimately mean that they made less money.
1: The Edison Trust was eventually undone through lost legal battles and legislation, In 1913, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Bauer and versus O'Donnell that a patent holder couldn't fix pricing related to use of that patent. The following year, Congress passed the Clayton Antitrust Act, which was designed to regulate businesses and prevent monopolies, and its regulations meant some of the trust's practices were illegal.
0: There was also a 1917 case of MPPC versus Universal Film Manufacturing Company in which the court ruled in Universal's favor that once a patent was licensed, the licensee was not legally bound to the licensor for any other reason. By the time all of these battles played out, most film producers had migrated to Hollywood to get away from the Edison Trust and do things their own way anyway.
1: Back to Hodkinson he approached this issue of wanting to convince his bosses that he was onto something important really methodically. At the end of 1912, he made two charts that compared the projected future of the film industry with this method in place versus the continuation of the state's rights and roadshow approach. He took these charts and all of this data to New York to meet with general film company leadership, but he was ultimately unsuccessful. Hodkinson had already implemented his distribution model in Northern California as part of his 1911 testing, and his bosses told him to change it back to the old way. He refused and was fired in May of 1913.
0: Yeah, for the record, like, the theater owners in, in the San Francisco area loved this model. They were completely good with it. But Hodkinson did not leave the industry. He believed in his new approach, and so he formed a company to distribute films for independent producers. That company, the Progressive Company, got distribution deals with Famous Players Company and Lasky Feature Play Company, which became founding members of Paramount before those two companies merged together. Hodkinson and Zucker had actually met when Hodkinson had gone to New York to plead his case with the heads of General Film.
1: The story behind the switch to Paramount From Progressive is that Hodkinson discovered on a visit back to New York there was already a progressive pictures. It was in the New York phone book. This is also when he is said to have first doodled the sketch of a mountain and stars that has been the basis of the Paramount Pictures logo ever since.
0: Yep, they're still using it. Uh, In July 1914, Paramount took out a two-page ad in the periodical Moving Picture World touting the distributor partners throughout the U.S. that they had arranged with a map of the United States showing how almost every part of the country could be reached through Paramount with the call to action to local exhibitors, quote, get in touch with our distributor in your territory and procure the finest motion pictures the world has ever seen.
1: Famous Players Film Company, Jesse El Lasky Feature Play Company, and Bosworth Incorporated are all called out as producers of Paramount Distributed Films in the ad. And to ensure that potential customers knew that foreign pictures could be obtained through Paramount as well, along the bottom of the spread was the phrase, quote, and the cream of the world's market in addition to the above manufacturers.
0: Once the famous Players Lasky Corporation was formed from the two existing companies, it became the primary supplier of films to Paramount as a distributor, making up an estimated 75% of their distribution titles. There had been a bump in the road early on in the relationship among these businesses. Zucker, Lasky, and other producers had all signed five-year contracts with Paramount. But because of the entirely new nature of the distribution model they were agreeing to, they didn't really grasp how much power it gave Hodgkinson until later. And that was problematic, even though producers were then making more money than ever thanks to his changes to the business.
1: Zucker tried to get out of his deal because of it, and Hodgkinson would not have it. In his anger, Zucker saw a bigger opportunity and made a move. On March 1st, 1915, Zucker renegotiated his deal with Paramount. And this was not, as you might expect, a situation to get out of his existing deal early. No, it was instead to extend the contract to 25 years.
0: That sounds kooky, but man was he thinking 18 steps ahead of everyone else because over the next two months, Zucker and his friend Jesse Lasky sold 51% of their companies to Paramount. This also sounds a little crazy, but it was part of a multi-layered plan to gain power for themselves. They used the money from the sales as well as a loan to start buying Paramount stock on the down low until they had accumulated a combined controlling share of Paramount. On June 13,
1: 1916, W.W. Hodkinson was forced to resign, as well as the Paramount treasurer who was loyal to him. That was Raymond Pauley. Zucker was in charge of the reorganized company, and Famous Players Lasky Corporation merged with Paramount Pictures. The Paramount name was still used for distribution, while Famous Players Lasky was still the production entity.
0: Yeah, this is one of those things that's always a little confusing whenever you're reading, uh, like, business histories. It it still goes on today, right? A business will get purchased by another or they'll merge, but they'll still keep using the separate names, and that can get a little confusing. That's kind of what was going on here. We have been part of deals like that before, and we've tried to sort it out. I was going to sarcastically say
1: we've never had that happen to us.
0: Yeah, we know exactly what that's about. As for Hodkinson, who was adamantly against the vertical integration of production distribution and exhibition that Paramount was now working with, he went on to work in a number of new distribution companies, some of which he founded for about a decade after he was ousted by Zucker. And he moved into the aviation industry and out of entertainment in 1926. And
1: that is where we are going to pause for this episode. Next time around, we'll cover how Zucker's newly combined entertainment powerhouse started using this massive footprint to push competitors to the side.
0: You ready for a little listener mail? I sure am. (laughs) This is from our listener, Dan, uh, who wrote, Dear Holly and Tracy, I'm very behind in my podcast listening. Dan, me too. I feel you. Me (laughs) three. He said, I have only reached late May in my playlist, and I consequently missed your June 12th deadline. I'm writing because you said that you missed hearing from fans during your tours. While we might never have met, I am a total fan of you both. I love your episodes. I've been a longtime listener of the podcast, going back to the days of Candace and Josh. I should know what happened to Candace, but I'm also a longtime listener of Stuff You Should Know with Josh and Chuck. I'm a Massachusetts resident and enjoy hearing about Tracy's Boston adventures during COVID-19. I especially miss the street festivals in the North End and getting a java berry at Dairy Joy in Weston. Holly, I feel a special connection to you. My family are big Disney and Star Wars fans. My wife is a runner, ran the Kessel Run at Run Disney in 2017, and her first marathon at Walt Disney World in 2018. I admit to checking for your bib at that later race. If you had entered, I would have asked you to meet. Uh, She's also a stitcher and used to craft costumes for Halloween adventures for our nieces and nephews. My favorite was a Toy Story takeoff when she made an Emperor Zurg costume for my son, and he got to deliver the Buzz, I am your cousin, when he was unmasked. I enjoyed listening to your Drawn the Story of Animation podcasts. His avatar at work is Phineas J. Whoopi. Again, best wishes to you both. Stay safe and thank you for all the joy you bring. I won't suggest a topic for an episode because I have always been delighted with whatever you present, Dan. Dan, that's so sweet. That is so sweet. I love it. I just wanted to read it because it's such a delightful and nice email. And I like knowing that there are people who have very overlapping uh, universes <laughs> of fandom with mine. Uh, yeah, I have not run a, a marathon since the one I ran in 2012 because <laughs> oh. that was a lot and I didn't want to do it again. Uh, I ran a lot of halves after that still, but I haven't run in a while. But, uh, yeah, it's a super fun. It's one of those things I don't I don't know how these things are going to work going forward yeah. <laughs> at all. So I hope that your wife, you know, finds a way through uh, and, and is able to do events that are interesting to her in the future because I have no idea what running events will look like in another five years, even. Another like d- any amount of time. I don't I don't have any idea. But um, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing this with us. It makes me so happy. And I'm always delighted when anyone listens to Drawn because I really loved doing that show. Um... Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Dan, for all the things, and also because I know that some people did miss that June twelfth deadline to post questions, and uh, because they, like me and you, are can't keep up with everything that they have to listen to, and there is no shame in that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All all the things that I used to listen to podcasts during
0: are are not happening don't happen anymore yeah not not so much also just so much going on uh if you would like to write to us about all the things going on that may or may not be keeping you from keeping up with your usual podcast listening you can do that at history podcast at iheartradio.com you can also find us on social media as missed in history and you can subscribe to the podcast on the iheartradio app at apple podcasts or wherever it is you listen